0: for his kind words of welcome. It's always a privilege to uh, share the exposition of scripture with you, to have the opportunity to read God's word and pray through verses like these that we have been reading this evening. I'd like you to turn to the chapter which we read, Daniel chapter 7. We'll have prayer together. Because having read about Daniel, his investigation into these truths, his interest in them, the burning heart that he carried, and also we saw by the end of the chapter how he treasured all these things, as you might expect, in his heart. We want our hearts to be like that too. Even if we can't quite match Daniel's high standards, at least in some small way, I am praying, Lord, let my heart be a treasure store of thy holy word. So we unite in prayer. Lord, we do come to thee. We come in all our need. We think of Daniel inquiring here as we discovered in the chapter. And we have come to inquire tonight. We pray for help from heaven, for unction from above, for the infilling of thy Holy Spirit with wisdom and grace and power minister to our hearts help us to glorify thee we thank thee for thy word thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name we can't say too much about the bible in the way of praise in the way of advocating its truth when thou hast done something like this to magnify thy holy word thy precious word Thy everlasting word above all thy name. We come tonight with a sense of awe. We feel our great need of thee. The need of thy presence, guidance, wisdom from above. The promptings of God. Even in our uh, meditation upon this passage. Teach us Lord. May we have the one conclusion before we leave. That surely the Lord ministered to our hearts that we were sitting in some sense at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. We think of Job with the question, who teaches like thee? Lord, we we come tonight saying, be our teacher and let us learn from thee. Grant, O God, that in season and out of season we may say, we have walked with God, and even in these paths, as it were, that we're going to traverse tonight in the scriptures of truth, let us walk with thee. We think of the promise thus given about the Holy Spirit. How He is the comforter, He will abide with us forever, and there's comfort in that. He has come to instruct us to imprint the word of Christ in our hearts and Lord grant that we may be able tonight this very hour to feed upon the living bread bless those who have tuned in at this time those who have come as well we ask that all of us alike may have Mary's portion and choosing that as the very best indeed of all Portions to sit at Jesus' feet and hear His word. Still, our hearts, Lord, let us wait with expectation on Thee, and let our eyes be fixed on Thee. And we pray that help us with our understanding. Sometimes, Lord, we we have to say we're slow of understanding. And then we think of the apostles themselves, and that it's opened the eyes of their understanding. Lord, do that for us, we pray, even in some measure, in some measure this very hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I think you know, the subject tonight takes the form of a question. Will there be a revival of the Roman Empire? The pursuit of any inquiry, especially an inquiry like this, should lead us at the first opportunity. To search the scriptures, to search God's word earnestly and prayerfully as well as with purpose of heart. Our endeavour is uh, to get the mind of God as best we can about these things that are going to get our attention tonight. Those things most surely believed among us. Hence I, I refer you to this chapter, Daniel chapter Seven. 28 verses for us to think about and I cannot promise because of time I cannot promise uh, to touch on every aspect of the chapter much as I would love to and I wish time would stand still. Many a time I'm saying to the Lord about Joshua, Lord you let him pray that prayer and cause the sun to stand still. I can hardly expect the same prayer to be answered for me but I feel uh, when time moves on and I'm engrossed in study and praying over passages like this and other places too in scripture I'm asking the Lord to stand still and those hands of time move inevitably on so it is our desire to get the mind of God as best we can about these things in which we are to meditate this evening Daniel 7 is a, a major a chapter in regard to this subject and I think it best perhaps since it is rather a long chapter if uh, I would give you a bird's eye view try to give you an outline of the contents just a, just a simple analysis if uh, by doing so it will help you to keep in mind as best you can uh, those things that uh, interested Daniel, even perplexed him then stirred up his soul and finally overwhelmed him uh, completely as I think uh, you'll want to say therefore to offer this analysis of the chapter to you for simplicity's sake I would ask you to look at verse 1. There is the introduction to this vision of Daniel. Verse 1 puts us in the picture as to the time and the circumstances of the vision. Nothing uh, is put in the Bible but that which is for our edification. Though there's nothing in the Bible by accident. It is rather there in accordance with the mind of God. So there's information in the introduction itself. But the vision that we want to talk about, the vision of Daniel in the chapter, extends from verse 2 through to 14. And by the time you get to verse 14, you're halfway through the chapter. The question might well come up in the minds of many. What's this vision really about? Now that's a good question and a fair question, and is not only applicable to Daniel's vision in the chapter, but many another passage as well can be treated in that way. What is this message that the Lord has for us tonight? And I want to suggest that there are four elements. In the vision of Daniel. First of all verse 3. Four great beasts. Came up from the sea. Diverse. One from the other. Here we learn of the emergence. Of four great empires. And these four empires. Are uh, likened. To wild beasts. Beasts of prey. And. And. They appear representatively, as I think you'll know. So they represent four empires, these beasts of prey, fearful as they are. Empires such as Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So number one element in this vision of Daniel is the emergence of four empires. Number two, I would refer you to verse eight. We might consider verse seven, along with eight, but eight primarily, of course. Uh, In verse seven, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. It's of particular interest that we uh, bring these words before you because our question, which gives us the subject, is will there be a revival of? of the Roman Empire the Roman Empire comes up for discussion here in verse 7 and 8 after this I saw verse 7 in the night visions and behold a fourth beast dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly and it had great iron teeth it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it And it had ten horns. I considered the horns. (coughs) And it's verse 8 that I'm singling out particularly as one of the features in Daniel's vision. The word considered. And uh, it is a rather emphatic word in the text, I may say. Uh, And on that account, perhaps I can just pause. Uh, as I pronounce it, and ask you to think of Daniel intensely considering. I think that's the way to put it. The intensity of his consideration here. So it's not just a matter of um, slight consideration or casual consideration, but there is some degree of intensity involved in, in the prophet Daniel. I consider, therefore, with that kind of uh, intensity, these horns, and behold there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots and behold in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. Thus we have as one of the elements in this vision of Daniel and this is Most important, given the intense consideration that Daniel is engaged in just now as we find him at this stage in the vision, I think, yes, you'll see, I'm justified in bringing this element, the consideration of the fourth empire, that Roman empire, especially, uh, this is the thing that especially took Daniel's concern Given that there were ten horns. And then creeping up into prominence among them. The little horn. Which prefigures the man of sin. The Antichrist himself. So that's the Roman Empire. Uh, one of the uh, main features of Daniel's vision. First of all remember we saw the four beasts coming up. I counted that. The first feature, the emergence of the four empires. And now in verse 8, in particular, the revelation concerning the Roman Empire. And particularly, its final form with the ten horns. And then, disaster itself, the appearance of the little horn. And number three, what would that be? What's the third element in the vision? verses 9 and 10 the awesome moment when the ancient of days himself is revealed and there is God almighty with the scepter of omnipotence so to speak in his hand ascending the throne of judgment to determine the future of the nations the books are opened and this is a time in the vision even the vision of it which is filled with an awe that overwhelms the prophet to see God revealed in all the splendor of his glory that's beyond the range of our thinking even but it's in the vision and that's an element in the vision and number four verses 13 and 14 This is the blessed prospect that rejoices the heart of the believer. For I'm talking about the glorious appearing of the Son of Man. Coming in the clouds of heaven. And I'm saying glory to God. This vision, if we take the four elements anyway. If we take the four elements. Then this vision keeps ascending in glory. Leaving the gloom and the wretchedness and the wickedness of man. And then ascending up into the heavenlies. Christ coming in the fullness of power. Praise his name. The declaration is heard. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That comes with the sound of the trumpet. And we have that marvelous passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. That's a shout of triumph, a shout of victory. The dead in Christ shall rise first, but then with the trump of God, that victory will be established. We have then four features in the main, in Daniel's vision. And I believe that will help fix that part of the passage in your mind. Perhaps before this, it would be true of some anyway. If it's not true of you, if you say, no, I have a great understanding of Daniel 7, fair enough. But uh, there are quite a lot of people who would say, I I can't really put pieces together in connection with Daniel's vision in chapter 7. And perhaps this attempt at a simple analysis will help you go places with, with Daniel the prophet With these four elements then, uh, making up Daniel's vision, we come to the halfway point of the chapter. And the second half is is fascinating because it consists of two inquiries. Again, I said a simple analysis. The latter part of the chapter, the second half of Daniel 7, consists of two inquiries. Who makes these inquiries? None other than Daniel himself. Daniel the prophet has two inquiries. The first begins, obviously, verse 15 on through to verse 18. And I have spoken of this, or have thought to speak of this, as an inquiry of a general nature, just summing up practically everything that he saw in the vision. And it's good to take that first inquiry on board and uh, see there Daniel just, maybe he's putting himself over the items in the vision. Uh, Or else he's thinking of that little flock who gather around his feet for tuition and fellowship. Because Daniel does have, I'm convinced, he does have a gathering of the Lord's people and he will tell them what the Lord has shown. And so he's making an inquiry himself, first of all to get uh, a solid grip of the details of that vision, and that's understandable. That's verses fifteen through to eighteen. And then the second inquiry at more length and with much more detail. Verse nineteen through twenty seven. And this second inquiry you will agree deserves the closest attention, and I would have to say in any part of scripture it deserves the closest attention but I'm speaking relative to our subject tonight in regard to this question and fixing these thoughts in our minds ever so clearly I trust we would pray over this second inquiry of Daniel. Verse 19 through 27 will give you the second inquiry that Daniel presents before the Lord. I think it's worthwhile saying that there's an emphasis in Daniel's mind when he puts these two inquiries to the Lord and that is he wants a clear mind about the things of God. Therefore the word truth comes up. In both inquiries, you can take that, if you like, to be a link between the first inquiry and the second inquiry. And if I would tease you tonight, I would say, Can you find the word truth there twice over in regard to these inquiries? Of course you can. In verse 16, I asked him the truth of all this. We're not to imagine Daniel doubted the vision. No, no, he would be coming. At the question from the wrong direction if that was your thought but no uh, Daniel seeks to have a sound knowledge of the things of God for it's perfectly true that one could receive a revelation from God himself and then put the wrong interpretation on it that's been done by many and I suppose if we talk about well Doctrinal disagreements among Christians. That's what you really have. All these believers themselves, never mind their differences, they all agree the Bible is the book, it's God's precious word, fully inspired of God, and all the rest of it. There's no question about that. But it's the interpretation. If I take A, B and C, Mr. A interprets it this way. And Mr. B interprets it that way. And and C, he, d- he doesn't know whether he wants to go with A or B. You see, it's the interpretation. And isn't Daniel right to say, I need a sound knowledge. I need a clear mind. I want my comprehension Before God Himself to be true to the Word and true to the mind of God. I did mention tonight at the very beginning, if God would grant it, we might have the mind of God this night. So Daniel says, Lord, impress my heart with the truth of this vision. And do you see the rest of verse 16? That's in consequence of his request. That's the answer, if you like. He asked him the truth of all this, and he made me to know the interpretation. We're right on target here. We're right on target in what we say. He made me to know the interpretation of the thing. And that's what Daniel is all about here, to have a sound comprehension of the things God gave us needless to say that's our desire every time we meditate on the scriptures whether they're prophetic or historical whether they're devotional and then the second time the word truth comes up did you remember to look for it well it's in verse 19 May I would know the truth of the fourth beast he's saying I need to get my interpretations right here I need to have a sound knowledge of what this vision is all about. And this is powerful. You can see that the vision given to Daniel had a serious impact upon him. I'm not going to be disparaging here, but in the charismatic movement lots of people talk about visions, I suppose they even come to feed in visions, never mind the Bible the Bible may be a forgotten book if it is, that's disastrous But there's so much about the vision uh, uh, and the vision fills them perhaps with a lot of good feeling about themselves being privileged to have these visions I don't share those feelings about them but these visions of Daniel especially this one here had a serious impact upon him he's he's saying to us in effect that the vision made a deep deep impression upon him and it seems to me that the prophet is shattered by what he sees and what he feels Then the conclusion comes at last in verse 8. And that rather bears out what I'm saying about Daniel's feelings concerning all that he saw, even that hour. As for me, Daniel, he said, this is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me. Of course, there is the aspect of triumph in the vision and I did touch on that in the summary I offered. But when he looks at the darker shadows in the vision, he's troubled deeply, and my countenance changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. I think that must mean that if he had a mirror, he would say of himself, I look really ghastly. In my reflection, his countenance changed. He, he, he is getting on in years, Daniel, this time. And they could describe him as an old man, and yet I could see their life in his countenance. I think I would see Christ in him, his eyes probably sparkling. I'll know more about it when I meet him in heaven. I'll not need an introduction, I think. But then suddenly, as he looks in the mirror... If he did so, he might have difficulty recognizing himself. You'd have to say that's ghastly, for his countenance has changed. we we'll try to look at the detail tonight, and there's so much here that deserves attention, and maybe it would call for a series rather than just the one sermon could we say something about this, this vision? Read verses 1 and 2 then for the introduction, and you will see that the vision is dated. In the first year, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel, had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Now, that's why uh, one of the reasons why Daniel wanted to be so clear in his mind about what the Lord had revealed to him. Because he intended to write out the vision. Uh, somebody said, writing makes an exact man. Uh, and uh, the speaker at that time meant serious writing. Writing makes an exact man. When you're talking in conversation with a friend, you might ramble a little bit. But once you come down to putting words on the page, especially if it's a serious document, uh, writing makes an exact man, or it should. Uh, And Daniel will have the intention of writing out the vision, and he has. And that's why you and I know about it. It's written here. But he had other purposes in writing. And he was going to tell about it. For he said, I told the matters. So line by line, element by element, feature by feature, Daniel unraveled that mystery that God revealed to him. It's it's tremendous. That's why I said, I believe a little flock of God's people gathered around him at the appointed time. And they had Daniel to their minister and what a minister he was he told the matters he could say truly I have a word from God that's the be all and the end all of all preaching in the second verse Daniel spake and said I saw in my vision by night you have I may say a reference to the time and the circumstances of the vision. The first year of Belshazzar, Daniel tells us, the king of Babylon. Not only the king of Babylon, I may put it to you, not only the king, but the last king of Babylon. For I do believe that for Daniel the clock was ticking. Once he sensed this, that God has spoken so powerfully in the first year of Belshazzar, given that Belshazzar only reigned for a brief time. Then Daniel surely senses the clock is ticking. The time is fast approaching when the kingdom of Babylon will be no more. What I'm saying Belshazzar is the last of the kings. Time is running out. And Daniel came on that night of the banquet, as you know, chapter 5, gives you such a graphic picture there, when the hand appeared by the light of the candlestick, and all those revelers in the banquet ceased from their reveling, put the drink down, and were staggered to see the hand. Appear in the light over there by the candlestick upon the wall, tracing out the solemn letters Mene, Mene, you Eupharsu, and Daniel coming at length to expound that message, saying, Thou art weighed in the balances that are found wanting. God has numbered your kingdom and He has finished it. So the sense of that doom and judgment was already there. And in that night, that fateful night, as chapter 5, verse 30 and 31, will record, Belshazzar, you know, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. That worldly minded, foolish man, he died in a drunken state. I, I fear he died without repentance, he died without God. And Daniel would know also. As the clock begins to tick and time is running out, he would sense since Darius the need took the kingdom that night when Belshazzar was slain. That would be a clear pointer to Daniel. That the time was fast approaching when 70 years of captivity for his people in Babylon and places nearby was coming to an end. He would know that in the book of Isaiah, God clearly foretold that Cyrus would initiate the repatriation of the Jews to their own land. There's also the thought there of darkness. I don't think there's anything in the word of God by coincidence. We might record details in some account of an event that concerned us. We might put in about the weather. We might, if we were writing to a friend, the weather here is very bad or the weather here is very good. We might put that sort of thing in. But when it it comes to scripture, anything that's recorded is worthwhile looking at the second time. And you will notice here, the vision came by night. That's, that's not the end of it because uh, down in verse 7 once more there is a reference to the hour when Daniel received his vision after this I saw in the night visions so may I say God is saying this for the second time and then later in verse 13 the detail is further established as if to say if you've got this far reading down the chapter not only verse 2 but verse 7 (coughs) then on to 13 that Daniel saw these things while a great darkness was settled upon Babylon. That's just like the world, filled with darkness. That darkness intensifying. We think of this country with its heritage, even spiritual heritage. This country has abandoned the things of God, trampled underfoot God's dear Son, forgotten about his word altogether as if the word never existed in the first place. You agree? There's a great darkness in this country. You might walk out on the street tonight, and if somebody had time, as you stopped them and asked them about, say Noah's flood, they wouldn't know what you were talking about, most likely. Such is the darkness. What I want to say is, the Lord might be, and I can't escape this. He might be saying, "There's there's great darkness in Babylon for all their pride and their so-called wisdom." darkness there. But with Daniel in his room, the light of God shines in. That's powerful. I say that with reason because in verse 2 he said, as he speaks, he gives answer. That word speak often is translated answer. And I would say really it's translated more times as an answer. So he, he may already have his little group around his feet, and they're asking him. And Daniel answered, "Yes," and said, "I saw in my vision by night." In the main, the he, this chapter is in Aramaic, but but um, there are parallel words in the Hebrew scriptures, and most of our Bible, most of our Old Testament, is in the Hebrew language. And in the main there are two words for seeing. One is ra'ah, which is to see in the normal way, to see with intelligence. And you and I uh, are thankful that we can see reasonably well. And maybe somebody here has exceptionally good eyesight. You can praise God if that's the way of it. But that's ra'ah, to see intelligently, to see in the normal fashion. And then there is another word, chazay, which means if it's used of a prophet, if it's used of a man like Daniel, it has to mean a revelation from God. And therefore, that word being used here, in verse 2, I saw in my vision by night. That highlights what I have been saying. It may be that darkness prevails in the Lord. But Daniel is able to see in a way that no man can. Chazay, he's seeing as the prophet of God. He's seeing a revelation from heaven. He has God revealing to him his unchangeable purpose. Do you know that this word, hase occurs ten times in Daniel 7. And because it is the prophet. Who has the vision. The prophet who is seeing. I'm saying he's seeing by revelation. That enhances this chapter. That raises it up. Uh, it raises up Daniel 7. Uh, in an exaltation. That puts it above all other literature. Sometimes in universities or in Bible colleges, a program is advertised. We're studying biblical literature. But I'm not studying biblical literature, I'm studying the Word of God. If, if we put that title on it, it might well give the idea that the Bible's quite like any other book open to investigation but the word of God investigates you we don't investigate it and it's not literature in that sense that we can just do a critique on the pages inside and and evaluate God's word like that put a question mark over its historicity if you like that's the kind of thing that concerns me no, this is a revelation. Daniel uses that. Can I call it a special word? It is in that sense. It is. Uh, when it's used of a prophet of God. It has to do with divine revelation. It means that he sees things. No one else can. And God has shown him. Things to come. I, think, I feel that's powerful. You've got it there. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. As beheld in verse 4, it appears, the same word, speaking of seeing by divine revelation. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. And furthermore, verse 6, after this I beheld. Verse 7, after this I saw. And if you have lexical help, I would uh, uh, encourage you at a later time uh, to take that lexical help, whether it's electronic or literary, and go through Daniel 7 with the thought, this abiding thought, that Daniel as a prophet from God is looking here by divine revelation into these things that are due to occur. I have to hurry on because that time is uh, it's just impossible for me to control. But verse 3 says, Four great beasts. This is what Daniel perceived in that revelation. As you understand, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea, the sea being the Mediterranean. This term, the Great Sea, is used in that way. And four great beasts came up from the sea. So the Mediterranean uh, Sea itself is going to f- uh, gain focus in, in this vision. It has obvious significance that nations on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea will be affected by this vision and nations near to the Mediterranean will be affected by this vision the four great empires will move their armies around the Mediterranean it has significance in ancient time then in the fulfillment of God's prophetic word, it has significance in reference to the future as well, because there is a future aspect to this vision. Israel is situated on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, the land of Israel. It's not there by chance. You think of ancient Rome. And for convenience, we'll just speak of modern Rome, just touching on the Mediterranean. And Greece and Egypt, these countries, among others, will be found on the shores of the Mediterranean. It's fascinating to look into Daniel chapter 7 and the four great empires have their involvement in reference to the Mediterranean and in reference to the land of Israel Zechariah the prophet talked about these four empires but he used uh, The emblem of the horn to describe them. I'm going to turn to Zechariah chapter one. And <clears throat> Zechariah chapter one, verse eighteen. Daniel lived until the time of Cyrus, As I said earlier, the clock is ticking, and and Daniel, when Darius the Mede takes the kingdom in Babylon, he knows the time is fast approaching when the 70 years of captivity are over. And and Zechariah as a young man, and Daniel as an old man, Zechariah has come back to the land of promise again he's, he's the young man but he's given this vision verse 18 of chapter 1 then I lifted up mine eyes and saw and behold four horns <laughs> there you have the four empires and I said unto the angel that talked with me what be these and he answered me these are the horns which have scattered Judah Israel and Jerusalem notice that these four empires Representing in themselves, even through to the last, the end of time, the end of this age, represent the times of the Gentiles. And Israel has been oppressed by these nations. These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed them four carpenters. And uh, verse 21 shows that these horns which have scattered Judah so that no man did lift up his head that these are come to fray them to cast out the horns of the Gentiles which lifted up their horns over the land of Judah to scatter it so it's impossible to read this passage and not see the significance of the four empires and you will notice that as uh, Zechariah's vision rises to a great climax according to Chapter 2 verse 12, the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. There is a fulfilment for this vision. I I, I want to say just uh, at this stage that God put the nations where they are. They're not there by accident. If, if you will look with me at, uh, I'll try to fit this in, Deuteronomy chapter 32. What I'm saying is the nations are not around, those nations around the shores of the Mediterranean, they're not there by accident. The dream of the evolutionist is that. There is nothing settled by purpose, certainly not by divine purpose. Nothing of significance in where Russia is or Israel is and such like. that's, That's an error of a first degree. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When the Most High divided the nations their inheritance... You can speak of Russia and Italy and Germany and England and so on. When he divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So God had Israel in mind all the time in in arranging uh, the territories, and the sea waves and the Mediterranean it's all in accordance with the divine plan Acts 17 and 26 is a verse you want to take note of and it's worthwhile looking it up tonight Acts chapter 17 verse 26 and this is what it says that God has made of one blood all the nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. It was God's purpose creating this earth for man to inhabit it. It's not by chance that man has come upon the earth. The evolutionist dream is that man evolved. What utter nonsense! The scripture shows clearly God fashioned. The earth. He created the heavens. He fashioned this earth to be a habitation for man. Do you see that in verse 26? And all the peoples on the face of this earth have come from the one human family in origin. They're all children of Adam. He has made of one blood. Not uh, There's not a variety of sources here in the production of the human race in spite of all the differences cultural and otherwise he has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in all all the face all the face of the earth that's creation scientists are doing their best those who are engaged in space exploration doing their utmost to find traces of life in Mars elsewhere Anything at all that might suggest to them the Bible's not right. You can't live with the thought that they might be wrong. You can't live with the thought that one day they'll have to face God. here we are. God made the entire human race to descend from two people, Adam and Eve, one blood. To dwell on the face of the earth. Not on the face of Jupiter or Mars or such like. But this little globe. The earth. He not only did that. But there is something else he has done. He has determined the times. How long. Human society will last. He is not only appointed to the nations where they will dwell. But he has determined before time the events to occur in the course of man's existence. This is a powerful statement. He has determined the times before appointed. And then the bounds. Back (laughs) to that verse in Deuteronomy again. To the bounds of their habitation. There is a reason for that. And I I believe that that reason, in its highest fulfilment is yet future but given the place of Israel on the shores of the Mediterranean the name Mediterranean means the middle of the earth and we're saying they're not there by chance the nation of Israel and when God comes back in the glory of his power and our saviour reigns in Jerusalem Israel is there in the centre of the earth. And God has determined that all these nations are in the places that they occupy. Because, verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him. So all roads then lead to Jerusalem. My time has gone, I, I say with regret. But uh, we're talking about the future Well, will the Roman Empire be revived? Daniel seven shows that the Roman Empire did not die with the Caesars, and the Roman Empire continues to exist. If I I persuade you to turn to Daniel seven again, when Daniel saw the horns. He, he he inquired especially into their significance I'm convinced he was shown these horns belong to what I'll call the remote future and it all concerns the fourth empire so it's the Roman Empire if you please and these horns appear in the last time the end of the age evidence of that well Keeping things as briefly as I can. Revelation 17. The ten horns appear. These political powers are behind the Antichrist. They appoint him to his position of honor. In terms of human influence. And God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his will. The ten horns are there in the future. Even future to us. That answers the question, doesn't it? That we started out with today, that the Roman Empire continues on and on and on, although not in the form that it had during the time of the Caesars, but nevertheless it remains in relation to its influence, right on through to the end, the appearance of the ten horns. And then I said, oh, look at that, creeping up among them, among the ten there is a little horn. So the Antichrist cannot come in a way in which he will be recognized until the ten horns appear first. Because the little horn is seen to creep up into prominence among the ten. The ten are there in the beginning. So that is an evidence. And a further evidence is that in Daniel chapter 7, there is reference to the three and a half years that sometimes we describe as three and a half years of the tribulation time. If you want the reference, that's verse 25. There's the Antichrist appearing at the end of the age, as I have endeavored to explain. Uh, there's the Antichrist, and all things are given into his hand for a limited season, a very short time. And that's why the devil is stirred up to greater wrath, because he knows that his time is short, the scripture says. And there you have, for the first time in your Bible, for the first time in your Bible, you're given the time for the tribulation period, if you'll put that name on it, the time, the times, and the dividing of a time, three and a half years. That's the first time in the Bible this period is referred to. And as I remember, later on in Daniel, the three and a half years. In the book of Revelation, three and a half years. Different notations are used, but we come up with the same extent of time. Three and a half years. But those three and a half years belong to the end of the age. And therefore, because they have to do with the manifestation of the man of sin... At the end of the age, the three and a half years precede the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That answers the question. And there is another way of demonstrating uh, that what we'll call the Roman Empire is restored or revived. That's Daniel 2. And with this I, I close in terms of scripture reference and in Daniel chapter 2 Nebuchadnezzar had a dream it's interpreted by Daniel the four empires appear once more Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome and then we have the stone cut out without hands hurtling down from the air striking this image on its feet there we have the passage of time disclosed in what is seen in this vision and these empires are are now viewed in corporate form in the one body it's just like uh, could I use the illustration the European Union the nations coming together forming one uh, great kingdom with one law one religion one purpose one goal one ethos and that's the picture at the end, the ten toes of the, of the image. The ten toes are destroyed when the great stone comes hurtling down out of the sky. That represents the coming of the Lord. Reducing the whole to rubble and the wind of God blows and there's nothing left of all that there is that obviously, since the ten toes are the part of the image struck by the rock indicating the coming of the Lord the ten are there when the Lord comes that's future and it belongs to the part of the image that belongs to the dominion of Rome all these things to me make the matter so vividly clear maybe I should say in closing notice some things in Daniel 1 you're told of Daniel's high intelligence probably it's right then to say he was a genius he had special skill with visions chapter 1 of the book of Daniel informs you so the king eventually came to rate Daniel's wisdom higher than all the wise men of Babylon that emphasizes the fact that Yes, King Nebuchadnezzar estimated that he was a genius as well. And yet, when it came to the visions of God here in Daniel 7, Daniel had to ask to make sure that his interpretation was sound. I'm just showing you that because if Daniel had to do that, you and I need not find it a, a, a difficulty if we're pondering a verse and wondering exactly how far we can go with the detail that is before you. You see, Daniel did not hesitate to ask the Lord. If any man like wisdom, let him ask of God. And if Daniel had to ask... May I point out, he even had to ask God about his own visions. So that's clear, is it not, that the prophet did not write down his prophetic scriptures purely out of his own heart and out of his own mind. For if Daniel had engineered these things, he would have understood. When you write a letter to someone... Even though it's about some abstruse matter. Obviously you understand what you're writing about. Otherwise you couldn't put words on the page at all. And Daniel if he had devised these prophecies. He would have understood them from beginning to end. But because he did not devise them. For holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They did not write down their own conclusions. And therefore Daniel had to ask God. And if Daniel with his... High intelligence would ask God, then you and I should not be discouraged to have to ask the Lord too. Some people say, Oh, I couldn't I would love to study Daniel 7, but I haven't got the brains. Well, Daniel had the brains. Daniel had the brains. And yet, for all that, his brains didn't provide the answer when it came to interpretation. Daniel had to go to the Lord. And he said, Give me the truth of the matter, Lord. So I encourage you not to close the book. Not to give up on the chapter. Saying, if I had Daniel's brains, what could I do? Well, if you had Daniel's brains, you would be asking the Lord, teach me some more. Isn't that lovely? And that's an encouragement. I have to say, and I think I've said it more than once to the Lord, I don't have Daniel's brains, Lord. But I have Daniel's prophecy." I want you to instruct me and teach me. Praise the Lord. Father.